the real beauty, the real added value is getting a good picture in real time at a low cost for a very big population. Contrasting this with the other extreme, which is testing all the individuals, which will give you a snapshot picture of all the individuals, but which will also be completely redundant two weeks later because they might all be infected. Hi, this is Eric Bagley in the Rocket FM studios in Stockholm, Sweden. Time now for episode 21, wave two, second wave of the Corona Crisis Once Upon a Pandemic podcast with me and Mark Vandenbosch joining me here in the studio. I guess uh, at first we wouldn't dare be in the same place at the same time, at least uh, at least early on in the podcast, but now it feels like it's more relaxed, people are gathering, but we are indeed in the midst of the second wave of this, uh, this pandemic. We've sort of relaxed a little bit in our interactions in Sweden and it seems throughout the world. And not unsurprisingly, uh, the result of this relaxation and the fact that we're once again congregating uh, indoors is uh, leading to this uh, second wave that a lot of people predicted. And uh, in terms of predicting and the second wave, uh, we'll be joined in a little while uh, by Dr. David Nielsen, who's the director of the Water Center at KTH, the Royal Institute of Technology here in Stockholm. Something we talked about earlier on in this podcast, we never talked to David, but um, we talked about this method of uh, tracking the uh, spread of coronavirus through wastewater. So we'll get to David a little bit later on in the podcast. But first, before we do that, uh, Mark, let's talk about some of the observations you've made in recent uh, days, recent weeks. We haven't actually done an episode, I think, since uh, July. So this is a real a real second wave for this podcast. Two of the countries that uh, that you have a lot of insight into are uh, Sweden, where, where you live, where we live, and also France, the country of your birth. And that's one of the places you really want to uh, focus on in this episode, right? It's been uh, reset for our podcast, but also a reset for the world in terms of the pandemic. The summertime was a time where people could relax, I guess, enjoy a semblance of normalcy in their day-to-day existences. But now we have to get back to reality, unfortunately. And in France, as throughout the world, you are seeing some huge upswings in cases. And as a result of that, Macron has instituted, once again, fairly draconian restrictions as of the 14th of October, I believe. Uh, For example, restaurants have to close at sundown. And this actually is having a little side effect, which is interesting from a cultural aspect. There's an old French tradition called le machon, which uh, is actually having basically a full meal for breakfast, including wine and dessert. So some of the restaurants, since they're being forced to close in the evenings now, are reinstituting this old tradition in order to make some money. And now people are getting up in the morning for breakfast and having these hot meals made of entrails. As you know, they're very big into entrails over there. Not really my thing. Drink it down with a bit of red wine and finish it up with a nice little dessert. Everything except for the entrails sounds pretty pretty appealing, actually. Yeah. And one, one thing I, you hear a lot about these curfews, kind of a, a bit of a lockdown, I guess, between certain hours. But I always wonder why that is. It's certain, I mean, it's not like the pandemic spreads more at nighttime or something. It's not like some sort of like uh, something that hides in the dark or anything. What, what's the, the point of I the curfew? I think part of that is that they don't want people to aggregate after work or after school in social contexts. And usually our social interactions take place in the evenings, especially after, you know, we've had a long day at work, we might drink a little bit, which also means that we sort of forget this social distancing. We start to hug each other or maybe more. And uh, in restaurants and bar contexts, things get uh, out of control pretty quickly. You see this happening also in Sweden. Apparently, there's been a lot of issues with nightclubs. 
And now that we're cracking down these nightclubs and closing a lot of them because, you know, even though you have the best intentions in the world, when you've been cooped up for weeks, months on end, and uh, you have an opportunity to social interact with others, then things happen and you kind of forget yourself. That's why I thought when they opened up the pubs in England, even though, of course, it's a massive cultural uh, tradition to go to pubs, but I always thought that might have not been the best way to let people socialize at first. But also you mentioned this thing that happened in um, in Sweden. I just, uh, I think it was last night, we broke on the news that, uh, yes, they're going to crack down on nightclubs because a lot of the young people, and of course, the, the age issue it was one of the, the fundamental aspects of this because of the way it, it spreads and the way it actually affects people, less so amongst young people, but they've become the real spreaders this time. So here in Sweden, they're, they're really cracking down on nightclubs because there's a lot of like these videos of, you know, downtown nightclubs where people were, were basically just kind of on top of each other. But at the same time, they crack down on the nightclubs, but they're also relaxing restrictions on other kinds of cultural gatherings or allowing, I think, up to 300 people to go to go see theaters and things like that. It seems like a little bit of a contradiction there. Well, it is a contradiction in play, but at the same time, when you're in a theater context, you're probably not pounding down the beers or, or the gin and tonics, and uh, you are able to exercise a more careful judgment. That is why there's a sort of different set of rules for these different contexts. That's my read on it anyway. So what, uh, what more is going on in France? And what's, what is, is the reaction? How is the public reaction besides this tiny big breakfast? There's is, a is real there fatigue. Pushback? There's a real fatigue, but there's also another undercurrent right now in France. Uh, the whole country is very focused on this terrible terrorist act that took place a few days ago with a French teacher who was killed. That is sort of mixed in into this generic pandemic malaise. And of course, there's a lot of public gatherings as a reaction to what's taking place. And of course, this doesn't jive at all with some of these restrictions. It's a fairly complex dynamic right now in France. You know, we talked earlier about what historians will look back and remember this, what kind of name they'll give to this year. And I think it's going to be the great pandemic. And I think that it will have a connotation that's not just the virus. I think it's of course the, whole, not, the whole year is going to be the pandemic. And it's going to be all these other things that happen, whether it's the riots in the United States, all these things. It's going to be one big giant big quagmire. Infe- <laughs> infection that has turned the world upside down in, in many ways. Uh, the great pandemic of 2020 and perhaps beyond. We'll see. Yeah. And we've mentioned on the previous podcast also the effect is is going to have on a whole generation, whether you're, you know, a little kid who has been impacted by this or high school student who's not able to attend school and go through the things you go through as a teenager or college graduates or coming into the marketplace in the midst of a pandemic. Who knows where we're going with this, but we're not out of the woods, far from it. One of the other things that we talked about on earlier episodes of this podcast was when baseball started coming back to Korea. Uh, they I pulled think, it off. Taiwan, and now we're in the midst of the World, World Series in yeah. the United States. Yeah, the World Series. But nobody seems to care too much. It's interesting. The hardcore fans, of course, are following this. But the ratings are catastrophic. As a matter of fact, the NBA Finals are so nobody watched that either. It seems the, the whole uh, world is, is so focused on other things right now that even sports is not serving as the type of distractions that we were hoping for. Now we're going to turn things over to uh, Dr. David Nielsen, a colleague of mine at uh, KTH, the uh, Royal Institute of Technology here in Stockholm. And he's the director of the Water Center and this uh, really fascinating program that um, can help uh, trace the spread of uh, COVID-19 through uh, wastewater. And David also wanted me to uh, point out to make it clear to the listeners that you cannot actually catch COVID-19. From the water. Water can be a way to trace COVID 19, but it doesn't work the other way around. So don't worry about that, even though some people have been calling in and when they heard about these uh, kinds of experiments, they became concerned that actually you can catch it from the the water supply. But uh, no, that is actually not the case. Here I start by uh, asking uh, David to explain how this uh, system works uh, in terms of tracing COVID 19 in sewage. Okay, so when you have the virus, if you're infected, then it's going to leave your body through the feces, right? So if you have the virus in the body, it goes with the feces out into the wastewater. 
And in the wastewater, you would be able then to trace not actually the virus itself, but the genetic code that is contained in the virus, in the cell. So um, it is an RNA code, basically, that you can, you can look at it as a genetic fingerprint that is specific for the virus that is causing the, the pandemic, the COVID-19. So that is actually what we are analyzing, and that's what we're finding in the, uh, in the wastewater here in, in Stockholm region. We're finding the, the RNA code. You started developing the system at uh, the Royal Institute of Technology, uh, I guess, pretty early on in the pandemic. I remember hearing stories about this back in the, in the spring. And uh, the main utility for this, from what I remember, was that this could be used to predict and, and trace the so-called second wave in the autumn. And I guess we are there now. So what, what have you seen uh, from this uh, method you've been developing over the past few months uh, as we uh, sit here in Stockholm, Sweden, uh, now in the middle of October? Well, we have seen, I mean, we have been following this, as you said, yeah, we have been following this since April, actually. We started doing the sampling in the region. And uh, we have then tried to piece together a timeline over how the, uh, the, the virus, uh, well, say the RNA signal, basically, how high concentration of the, uh, of the virus we can find in the wastewater. And it was high during April and May. Actually, it peaked uh, we could see the highest level of concentration in early May, and then it uh, it receded and it went down to rather low, actually so low concentration we couldn't even detect it. It was below the detection in uh, in July, and then from September we have been able to trace the virus again in the wastewater, and uh, we have seen an uh, an indication of an of an increasing trend then over over September. I mean, I guess the point of this too also is to um, not just to sort of see the um, the spread of COVID reflected in the wastewater that we see uh, using other methods as well, but also to be able to identify certain hot spots and to somehow act upon the information that the that the wastewater is uh, is revealing. Can you explain how that how that works together with the public authorities to actually do something about the spread of COVID in some sort of um, some sort of, sort of a preventive or predictive method? Well, I think we need to separate out what what kind of information we can get from the environment and from the from from the population and so on, from the health uh, records and so on. So those are the kind of it's like a, it's a, more of a jigsaw puzzle of information. And uh, the idea is, of course, to piece together a coherent story and to understand what's going on when it comes to the to the spread of the disease and how that is uh, is evolving over time. Uh, so that that's one side of it. And the other side is then, of course, what do you do with that information? What 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 will you act upon? Uh, and so far, we have seen that health care system and public health agencies and so on has been very clear on acting upon like the, the the knowledge they have since before so what we're bringing in as a new piece in this is in this puzzle and i wouldn't say that so far uh, it has meant so much for how we can understand uh, or how what, what we act how we act in this situation so uh, what we hope to do is to bring a new type of knowledge which is actually more reflective of the actual situation not just the number of cases that has been reported through individual testing, not just through the number of hospitalizations, etc., and the number of deaths, but we could actually say something which is more true about the spread of the population in itself. So, as I said, this is one side of, this, of a long story, and we think that this can bring new and uh, uh, yeah, a missing piece, pretty much. I don't know if that explains your 
<laughs> well, uh, let's talk about some of the, the granular detail that this yeah. brings that maybe other methods cannot, right? Because you can mm-hmm. actually get right down to the neighborhood level, right? Where I guess you, you, you do the sampling at uh, sewage treatment plants and uh, spread out around the Stockholm area. Can you explain that, how this can give us a, a different level of granularity perhaps that some of the other methods uh, maybe uh, cannot? What you do is you you decide to you decide on a sampling strategy, which will of course be defi- defined by, I would say, your amount of resources. Because the more sites you want to sample, the more granular you want to make it, the the more resources you're going to require. Because for each area that you want to make an assessment of the the spread of the of the of the, of the virus in, in that particular time, then you would have to make a sample for that particular area. What we have done now is to make a sampling at three wastewater treatment plants. And they are together covering about 1.7 million people in the Stockholm region. And I think this is actually the beauty. This is the beauty of the method that you can, by a, a small number of samples, you can cover a very large population. Now, if you want to make a geographic distribution more in smaller zones, then you would also need to have more sample sites, obviously. Theoretically, it's, it's very possible to do this on, even on a neighborhood level. But then again, what do you do with that information? Does it mean that you have to seal off that neighborhood? Or do you, do you want to differentiate the regulations within a city depending on the spread of the zones? Or do you act in terms of information campaigns and so on? So I would say that the real beauty, the real added value is getting a good picture in real time at a low cost for a very big population. So contrasting this with the other extreme, which is testing all the individuals, which will give you a snapshot picture of all the individuals, but which will also be completely redundant two weeks later because they might all be infected you know, after two weeks. Right, because obviously people don't have to be tested for the, for the results of this, of this method to, uh, to become clear. If you think of it, what do you do when you do an individual testing and have that as a, the, the kind of main methodology is that you have to sample each and every individual. So in our case then, if we would go out and take a sample of 1.7 million people, that would be quite an operation, right? Quite a big... Uh, <laughs> uh, you can just imagine what it would take in terms of resources and in terms of integrity problems because what, also what do you do with all this data? You have health data about your entire population down to the, to the individual level. So who takes care of that data and how does, it infla- you know, uh, how does it impact on the integrity questions and so on? Now what you do with our method is that you ask every person to donate a sample because they do that every day anyway. How many times do you go to the toilet, you know, to drop your poo? At least once or twice a day, right? So people do this anyway. So actually, they are, we are all sampling. <laughs> we are donating our samples, right? Uh, and that we can pick up in a one, one large pooled sample and analyze that. It's really taking the advantage of other technical systems we already have in place and the habits that we already have in place. Because now if you're asking people to go to a specific facility to make a blood test or to make a, you know, take a, a nasal swab or whatever, then you have to have that infrastructure. Then you have to, to, to incite people to do that. But now we are piggybacking on a behavior and a, a, a human need and an infrastructure which is already there. It's also pre- present. You know? But we're bringing out some completely new information from that same infrastructure and that social kind of interaction with that infrastructure. Now, this podcast, uh, it's uh, both uh, for a Swedish audience and also for an international audience. So perhaps for some of our non-Swedish listeners, uh, the, the sort of the neighborhood breakdown maybe is not uh, so interesting. But let's talk about that anyway, though. And what, what do you see in sort of a population of a city of Stockholm with a, a dense city? Uh, 
city center, various suburbs nearby. Is there any any sort of um, broad stroke or perhaps even, let's say, granular um, details you can say about this from from your, your sampling at these uh, various uh, wastewater treatment plants? What um, what does it reveal about population density, uh, different demographic aspects? Uh, is there anything that, that you've seen in this sampling so far that, that, that perhaps can enlighten uh, the decision-making process to actually manage COVID-19 here in Sweden? I would say so far it hasn't really. We have seen differences between those various areas. Uh, and especially in the beginning, we we reported that there were some parts of the city where we could find higher concentrations. But we should remember that this was like a one-week sample or something. So the uh, the variability, it was simply not a statistically <laughs> certified, you know, picture of what was out there, I would say. But it gained a lot, it, it kind of caught the attention of media and, and uh, general public as well, saying that, oh, in that area, you know, they have a higher incidence. But that same information we could, of course, have gotten from other reports like the reported uh, cases through through other conventional testing or through, through hospitalization and things like that. So I wouldn't say that at this point the sewage uh, surveillance has brought any much more light on the dynamics within the city because that... Yeah, the picture is still too unclear, actually. But that, that is one of the possibilities with the method, though. So as the method progresses, as we get more certain methods and more certain... And if we decide on a sampling strategy, which is more granular, which is more going down to, to more localized level, then definitely we should be able to see that. But at this point, it's kind of too coarse, a little bit too big chunks that we are chewing off to say that, I would say. When this project's being run out of the Royal Institute of Technology, uh, but do you, are you working in cooperation with the the utilities and with the the uh, municipality, the um, other authorities here in Sweden as well? It was kind of interesting how this whole thing came together. Actually, we we started it as an uh, it was a, an initiative at KTH Royal Institute of Technology. Uh, where some researchers realized that, uh, okay, this could be done and we could do it here in Stockholm. And we very quickly contacted the uh, main water and sewerage works here in the city. So that is the Stockholm Water Company, right? So they were with us right from the start. They are actually the ones who are uh, responsible for the sampling. And then just a week or two later, they were joined by Shepala Verbund, which is another wastewater treatment plant. And we also have a collaboration with Vanbury Municipality, a smaller municipality outside of the region. We wanted to have them as part, as a sort of a reference. Anyway, they were part of this very early on. But, you know, a waterworks, they are not responsible for the public health control or public health, shall we say, uh, information campaigns and uh, recommendations, things like that. They are supposed to give you water and to take care of your sewage water. But then we have regions here which are responsible for the healthcare system and all of that. And we have had a dialogue with them to keep them informed of what we are doing and where we are in the research, because I see that this could be a very you know, useful information for them to add to other types of uh, information they have around the, around the spreading. And finally, the National Public Health Agency, we have had also dialogue with them over the past months, right? I would say, however, that so far the agencies and the, uh, yeah, the decision makers when it comes to the public health 
they haven't taken it on, uh, really, this type of information, uh, maybe because they feel that this is still, it's still too new, too, uh, you know, underdeveloped or something like that. So Underdeveloped in terms of the, um, the actual methodology or the fact that you haven't had enough samples or, or where's the sort of the, uh, the limits of this or, let's say, the, um, the ways forward for further developing this, uh, this uh, way of uh, tracing COVID-19 in wastewater? Method-wise, I think that we have a quite a good uh, method in place. Well, I should perhaps say that this whole analysis is it comprises of you know several steps. First, you do the sampling, and then you have to do a concentration because the virus is uh, you know it's there's so little in the water, so you have to concentrate up the and and, and get these. Uh, get a higher uh, vi- virus concentrate, so to say. So that is step two. And then the third step is to extract the virus, you know, extract the genetic material from the virus. And the fourth stage is actually doing the analysis. And the fifth is then uh, interpreting what you get. When it comes to, for instance, the concentration step and uh, how to, to get it out, uh, that is a quite essential part of it. And we did a comparison between our method and some other internationally established methods. And we found that ours is, is actually better even than some of the international methods. So we're not too concerned about the, the method itself. It is more on the, uh, the resources that is required to roll it out, to build up a larger experience base, and, of course, to do the interpretation and to put this kind of information together with other data and see what are the patterns that emerge from this total landscape of information that we're getting. You mentioned five steps, but I guess the sixth step would be to actually act upon this. That, and that, that would be beyond the goals of this project. I guess it would be the decision makers would have to actually act upon this. Now, that interface is very interesting. Oftentimes in the media and elsewhere, people talk about deferring to science. We have to act upon science and the best data. And this obviously is a, is a rigorous uh, method you've, you've uh, developed here. Where do you see the, the problems there from taking this step from the fifth step to the sixth step? And, and not only are you in, in charge of this project, but also it should be said that you're also a historian of science and technology. So this is something you've thought about quite a bit. Where do you see, maybe on, on this slightly more abstract level, where do you see that interface uh, running into difficulties in this particular project? It's kind of interesting how this project has revealed a number of uh, interesting questions just like that. What kind of information can we act upon? Uh, what kind of information do we need? And how certain do we want that information to be? I would say that so far, Decision makers, whether they are in like national public health agency or something like that, have been acting on the known knowns, if we <laughs> use a, an old expression, right? Uh, this is what we know. In time a crisis situation like this will always put us in a situation where we are facing challenges that we haven't faced before. So the question is, do we want to fight this war with you know, the machinery and the, the knowledge from from the last war, if we take a you know, reference to military history. And I would say that what, what we have to increasingly be prepared to, I think, is to look at uh, new types of information, new types of knowledge that are still in process, still being developed, and to maybe accept that we can act on knowledge that is also imperfect. We should be able to act on imperfect uh, information. As long as it is developed within, uh, shall we say, a scientific setting with the scientific uh, goals that we have in the process. But if we have to wait until we have 100% certainty or a 99.9% certainty or whatever uh, significance level we would like to put on uh, those various statistical tests and so on, uh, in this case it would be too late. 
in that case, uh, if we are going to wait until we have that perfect knowledge about how this method can tell us uh, uh, you know, new things about the pandemic, then we have to wait until next year. And by that time, okay, maybe we can hit the fourth wave. Who knows? Or we can develop this method for the next time we have a pandemic. But we don't know if it's going to be that virus, obviously. It'll be another one. But we probably have, as, as we all know, we, this is not the first... What, neither the first nor the last crisis that humanity is facing, right? So how can we then mobilize research quickly and to be able to get the best possible knowledge within a short time span without asking scientists to be 100% sure before they open their mouth, right? Awesome. Fascinating questions. Of course, the, the other creeping crisis, perhaps not even creeping at this point, this idea of acting on imperfect information or incomplete information, let's say. It would be climate change. So uh, some parallels perhaps between the, the climate change and acting upon that and also this, this current pandemic, which uh, feels a lot more acute. Mm. No, I think that this is, at least for me, this is one of the lessons I'm actually already pulling out of this, that I'm seeing a, I'm starting to to question perhaps the, shall we say, the, the landscape, the policy landscape of how we produce knowledge that is relevant for society. Because, okay, I work at the university. And what I've heard for the past 10, 15 years at the universities, they need to make themselves more relevant, right? They need to address the societal challenge, those grand challenges of society, including climate change or including the, the health issues, uh, malnutrition and food crisis, energy crisis, whatnot you have. Okay, so if we're going to do that, can we do that <laughs> even without, you know, venturing into this land of the unknown? Of course not. Of course not. We have to be able to uh, let go of some of our, even some of our own, well, we have to get out of the comfort zone in, in science, in research as well. And this is an attempt of doing so, I think, that what we're doing now. One of the lessons I'm kind of picking out of this is exactly that, that we need, we need to be there as, as uh, science producers to address the, the challenges, yes. But maybe we should even uh, have another type of dialogue with the policymakers, have another type of funding system also. Because now the system is set up to produce excellent research over very long periods of time. And if we want to have this more action-oriented research, we also need to create other types of systems for that, which can act much faster, which can allow us to experiment and get out of the comfort zone a bit, and now I'm not talking only about these, uh, you know, presumably growth-oriented uh, innovation funds or things like that. But, you know, a crisis fund or something like that for researchers to do whatever they can when, when society is, fa is facing a challenge and to get out of those old, well-trodden paths sometimes. And in our case, with the research uh, team that we put together, they are new to this area. They have not been working with uh, what we call wastewater-based epidemiology. They have been working with wastewater. They have been working with protein science and virus studies and things like that. But they said, okay, to hell with disciplines. Let's just try this. You know. Let's get out of our comfort zone and see what we can do. And the reason we could do it was because of a donation from a private foundation and our own funding from the university. But we didn't get anything from any of those big, you know, science foundations or, you know, the science councils and so on that are there to fund the, the real, quote unquote, real science, you know, the, the excellence thing that takes 10 years to produce. So, yeah, let's, um, let's mobilize a bit quicker and try to experiment more. 
the time compression that goes along with a crisis like this it certainly uh, opens up a new perspectives and perhaps new connections and, and innovative ways of, of working together across uh, disciplinary boundaries, institutional boundaries as well. And as you mentioned there with the um, this idea of a crisis fund, I think that, that sounds like a fantastic idea that works perhaps a lot faster than the, the wheels of research funding generally do. Yeah, I mean, we haven't been to war in this small country of ours for over 200 years. But I would guess that in a situation of a war, then you would also mobilize research, right? But you wouldn't do that by saying, okay, so we're opening up a call and then may the best uh, researcher win in uh, competitive uh, kind of bidding for the money, which is there. But you would rather say, this is the problem we have. This is a very acute thing that we need to solve. So I'm thinking about the, how the radar was developed by the British. Okay, so we have a problem. Let's try to address it. And let's pick the ones that seem to be best at doing these things and not maybe take this whole long, you know, competitive bidding kind of approach. I know this sounds extremely you know, authoritarian somehow, but, you know, it's more like we have set up a knowledge production system, if we call it that, which is, you know, fit for a stable, peaceful condition where things, you know, one year to the other look more or less the same. So there is continuity, there is, uh, you can predict what's going to happen more or less over the coming 10 years. But that is not really where we are now. I think the war metaphor is, is very, very good. And often people talk about a Manhattan project for, you know, fighting climate change and so forth. And also the idea that Sweden has not been in war for over 200 years. This pandemic is also a bit of a, of a experimental laboratory, right, with different countries taking different paths, and especially Sweden being an international outlier, uh, taking a very different approach to, to dealing with this uh, virus. So perhaps some of these more innovative cutting-edge methods like the one you're pursuing could be a part of that uh, a part of that perspective. How um, How is this method that you're – I guess you didn't invent this method, but you're mm-hmm. developing this method. Is there some sort of international diffusion? Is there other – urban areas around the world that are using this or experimenting with this as well? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Actually, uh, our work has been inspired by other international teams who started early on, actually, with, with developing this wastewater-based epidemiology, specifically in the Netherlands. They were uh, producing some uh, interesting results already in uh, March, April, thereabout. And that was kind of, that attracted our attention and our interest for this. Uh, and we said, like, hey, we, we could do something similar here. So in the Netherlands, they started and there they have taken a much more, shall we say, holistic and national approach to it. What started as a research initiative eventually escalated into a national monitoring system, basically. So they are they are sampling and monitoring the wastewater for COVID in 300 spots, you know, across the country. In Australia, they also started early. And I know that in the U.S., a uh, number of s- large cities has, you know, started also doing wastewater surveillance like New York. In the U.K. as well, they have also uh, on a regional level started also rolling out this program. So definitely there is there is this thing is going on in many places. And some countries have taken it more to their heart as part of the uh, national toolbox or whatever you like to call it. And there is collaboration, obviously, coordinated by a number of uh, international partners like uh, World Health Organization or uh, International Water Association and others. So, so we are part of that as well. And a colleague of mine is, you know, participating in all these meetings and we are sharing internationally all the time. We are also uh, collaborating with others here in, in Sweden, in Uppsala University and SLU and 
another uh, life lab- laboratory, obviously. But there is an international dimension and there is, there is know-how being developed. I wouldn't say standards. We are not at the level that we're having international standards, but there are some practices which are considered to be best practice and that many other countries are following. Well, it's a fascinating uh, front on the, the war against uh, COVID-19 and the uh, global pandemic. Uh, Dr. David Nielsen, the director of the Water Center at KTH, Royal Institute of Technology. Thank you very much for joining us here on the podcast. Thank you.